Good morning, you hope, and I'm glad that you've joined us today on our YouTube channel. I want you to know that Kimberly and I are praying for you, and although we haven't been able to gather due to this pandemic, many of our church family are busier than ever meeting the needs and caring for people. Many of us are meeting in small groups using technologies like Zoom and Skype and other technologies. Today, I'd encourage you to grab an outline and print it out and follow along with us, and you'll find that in the notes in our YouTube channel. Now, perhaps you, like Kimberly and I, may be stuck at home, and maybe you're asking yourself, why is this happening? Can I suggest to you that one of the ways that God gets our attention is, is through difficulty? And perhaps God is wanting to get your attention at this time. I want you to consider that in this message is perhaps a hope that you've been looking for. I want you also to consider the importance of Easter and of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, as your personal Savior. Now, if you don't already know him, I'm going to give you an opportunity towards the end to respond. Now, I want to pick up this morning an amazing story that Luke, Dr. Luke tells us on that very first Easter Sunday morning. There were two followers of Jesus walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And Jesus had just been crucified on Good Friday. Today, in their terms, was Resurrection Sunday morning. And during their walk, the two disciples are heading back to a place called Emmaus. Dr. Luke tells us that on that first Easter morning, two of Jesus' followers were walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a little village. Now, Jesus had been crucified on Good Friday, and today was Resurrection Sunday. It was Resurrection Sunday morning, and they were going back home. Now, during their walk, two disciples were talking about everything that had happened. It was national headline material. Everybody had an opinion about the late prophet from Galilee. His death relieved many because his presence had ruffled a lot of feathers, especially in the temple. He'd radically disrupted and traumatized many of the Pharisees' lives and the Sadducees. Now, with his death done and dusted, they could go on with their everyday business as usual. Now, for others, though, that meant a period of absolute disillusionment and despair and mourning. Grief would flood their hearts. And they were just discouraged because they had believed the Messiah was going to come and save them from Roman domination, which they detested. He was the coming deliverer in their minds. But now he was dead. Now I want you to remember, as Jesus' followers, these two would have recently partaken in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They would have watched the crowds, heard the Hosannas, Hosanna, being shouted out in the palm branches. These two would have also heard the calls for Jesus' death by the fickle crowd. These two would have also witnessed the final walk through Jerusalem on the Via Della Rosa, and possibly even seen his crucifixion. Here's the point, though. The object of their hopes had been crushed and crucified on a cross, forced to hang there 
by the Roman Empire that he was supposed to conquer. So their hope was gone and he was dead. Now on the third day, stories began to circulate and his body was not where it was supposed to be. And many had the gall to suggest that he'd risen from the dead. Some people had even reported seeing him. Actually, ten reports in all, if you count them. Five of them in one day. The first was early on the first Sunday. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then to some women who were returning from the tomb. Soon after that, he showed up himself to ten of the disciples assembled in the upper room. And then, interestingly, he appears to Peter in a very private appearance. Paul refers to that as well. But it's this fifth appearance, to me, is perhaps the most astonishing of all. Because it was on that first Easter afternoon, as the sky had darkened toward dusk, Jesus appears to two men, travelling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That's about seven miles, or about 11 k's. And these two had heard the witness of the woman that morning. Yet they held on to their doubts and their sadness. So why were they leaving Jerusalem at that time of day? Perhaps it was to escape the hopelessness that they found. Or perhaps it was to clear their minds and to think about, maybe we need a brand new direction in our lives. Nevertheless, they returned home discussing the events as they left the city. But one thing's for sure we know, they were devastated, and they're in shock. That's the human perspective. Now, wonderfully, God clearly had a different purpose in mind here. And interestingly, the most detailed record of any that Jesus had post-resurrection doesn't involve Mary, it doesn't involve Peter, or the known disciples. Notice it involves two unknown men who are not specifically mentioned up to this point in the Bible. Cleopas here makes his debut in Luke chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab them and open them up to Luke 24. Whilst the other disciple was unidentified. Now, wonderfully, that was just like Jesus to do that. Jesus is not partial to the well-known or to the well-healed. He doesn't gravitate towards the famous and the rich. He comes to the unknown and the weakest of us all, to bring his joy and gladness into our hearts. So if you study this in three Luke 24 in three parts, you could summarize it this way. Number one, the first sort of scene or act is on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The second scene is a mysterious stranger joins them. And then third scene, the third scene, would be in a humble home in Emmaus where three men prepare to share a meal. So I want to take you through this. Number one, scene one. And you could, on your outline, perhaps summarize that with the words discouragement or disappointment, or both. Picking it up from Luke 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now often, maybe you've realized this too, discouragement 
has three levels. First of all, there's a doubt that's introduced. And these two certainly had heard the testimony of Mary and the other women. But they did not believe Jesus was alive. They doubted. And therefore, disappointment followed their doubt naturally. Verse 21 of Luke 24. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. So what they're saying here is all of their dreams for the future had died with Jesus. These are the guys that had heard him say, like in John 4, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now they had believed he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And here's the problem. All hope had been dashed. Scene number two on your outline is the discussion scene. Then in what appears to be a moment of their greatest despair, these two men have a visit from Jesus. He appears, and this is what the Bible says in Luke 24, 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, when that phrase is saying they drew near, it's got the idea that he was behind and he stepped on the gas to catch up with them. He sped up. The Bible then says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. It's kind of like, stopping their tracks. They're looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So when Jesus approaches Cleopas and his friends, he asks them an interesting question. What made them so sad? And Cleopas's response to Jesus' question is, in my view, the most ironic response in all of Scripture. When he says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known the things, these things that have happened there in these days? Then these men proceed to tell Jesus what they believed about Jesus, still aware, unaware they were talking to Jesus. Now I notice, and so do you here, I'm sure, that they confessed what they believed. Interesting. What was that? That he was a prophet? That he was a man of mighty words, uh, miracle works, and great words? They described his suffering accurately and his crucifixion accurately and their hope that he was their redeemer. That was all reasonable. Yet, they had not processed the one solitary thing they needed to believe. You know what that was? That he'd risen from the dead. Verse 21 picks it up. 
Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company, notice that, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying, They have even seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Now some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. So friends, it's possible to be a Christian and not understand the full technicalities of the resurrection. But it is not possible to be a Christian and deny the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Simple as that. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world. And it's this. Our leader, our saviour, overcame death. And he came out of the tomb by God's power. He was resurrected and is alive today. Now if that's not true, we are still in our sins and we don't have a faith at all. Notice this verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So we see these two disciples have believed everything except the essential thing. They believed Jesus was a good man, he was a prophet, he was a miracle worker and a great teacher. Yet, he said he had to rise from the dead and they didn't know that he'd actually done that very thing. So notice up to this point in their walk, Jesus has only walked alongside those two disciples. I notice that he didn't try to persuade them of his identity or even his resurrection. He has only asked them one question. Why are you so sad? And then he says, what things are you talking about? Which is a little interesting to me. Have you ever wondered why Jesus asked so many questions? I did. So much so, just for grins, I did a quick squiz. Do you know how many questions he asked? Recorded in the New Testament? 307. So what I infer from that is that Jesus seemed more interested in dialogue with people rather than lecturing them. That's why our small group has been studying one of my friends, Greg Kokor, has a book called Tactics. And it is really about the art of conversation with those who are dwellers on the threshold. They'd want to believe, but they're not quite sure. It's interesting to watch the example of Jesus interacting with people that have disbelief. Notice first, he naturally walked with them and he easily conversed with them. And then only at the appropriate moment did he then open the scriptures to them. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now it's kind of intriguing that Jesus didn't rebuke them for not recognizing him. But he does get after them for not understanding the scriptures. They had the wrong idea 
about what the Old Testament taught, what the cross and the meaning of the resurrection was. Now, today I've come across some folks who say, well, you can't learn about Jesus from the Old Testament. You must learn about Jesus from the New Testament. But please observe that Jesus taught about himself through Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, i.e. from the whole Old Testament. And the Old Testament is actually a picture from end to end of Jesus, from the beginning to end, who is presented in detail in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, wouldn't you love to have known what Jesus said when he opened the scriptures to them concerning himself? Did he tell the story about Abraham and Isaac on the Mount of Moriah? Or did he preach the gospel from Isaiah 53, verse 6? All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the mind boggles, I would have loved. I'm going to watch that video in heaven. Anyway, as of three near the turn-off, there's a turn-off coming in the road. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now fast spent. So he went with them. He went in to stay with them. So, the first scene was discouragement, and then discussion. Now we're about to see discovery, when they arrive at the home and sit down for this evening meal. They were about to discover that their hope had been resurrected. Luke 24, verse 30 through 35. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Jesus opened the scriptures to them. Then he opened their eyes so they could see. Scene three is the discovery. When Jesus breaks the bread for the evening meal, after a long day, the two men were emotionally spent and physically spent too. So Jesus presides over the meal, which is unusual. That's breaking custom, because normally when people invite you to, to their house, they would break the bread and give it to you. But he blesses the bread, and as he gives it to them, their eyes are opened. Perhaps they saw the nail scars on his wrists. Can you imagine the reaction to that? Can you imagine Cleopas turning to his friend and realizing that this is the man, the one in whom we were talking, and he's right there in our home? Then the scripture says in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now I want you to think about the incredible change that's taken place in the heart of these two individuals. Consider their feelings at the beginning of a trip, the beginning of their journey, downtrodden and discouraged. 
And then remember the Bible lessons that they received from Jesus and how their hearts burned. And then imagine having their eyes opened and seeing the risen Christ. Now, just a few hours earlier, they had been ready to give up. Now, watch what happens. Verse 33. Then they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them were gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So these two had already endured a long, emotional, hard day, and then travel on top of that. Then they'd taken part in the Bible study beyond anything they could have imagined. They broke bread, and then Jesus vanishes. But, and here's the big one, they were so energized after seeing Jesus, they got up and they made that seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem that night to find the disciples. So that's 14 miles. Can I suggest, though, that second seven miles was a much different trip than the one that had been coming to Emmaus. It would have been much quicker. You see, once you've met the risen Savior, everything changes. Before, they didn't have the energy, nor did they have the desire to make that trip. But now, they boost back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples about their life-changing experience. That he's alive, and that he's risen from the dead. Actually, in verse 32, from the ESV version, he says, He opened to us the scriptures. After he did that, in verse 35, he opened their mouths and they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Friends, the greatest encouragement you'll ever know is the giving of Jesus Christ to our world. Through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, Jesus has written the word hope in every heart that believes. Now, there are three things that are now apparent from Scripture that we can infer and imply from this account of Luke's. The first is Jesus comes to us in our own situation. He comes where we are. So he comes to us in our own situation. Jesus met these guys in their moments of disappointment and despair and grief. Perhaps you even wonder what's going to happen in the days ahead. What about my job? How am I going to get paid? Is there going to be a job to even go back to? How am I going to care for my family? And what if I get sick? Now, in the midst of those questions, it's easy to feel alone. But let me tell you something. If Jesus is in your life, it's in those moments when you will feel his presence. Now, for those who've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, notice that he often comes to you in your trouble and despair. He'll knock at the door. He won't come at the peak of your prosperity and your success. But I've noticed he comes when your world falls apart and you and I realize our own inadequacy. So reach out in faith, just as these two disciples did. And then you discover that the Lord is right there with you in your own situation. Notice also that Jesus reveals himself in a very common way over a common meal among friends. You don't have to do anything special. He comes to you where you are. 
Number two, Jesus comes to us by revelation. He comes to us by revelation. Now, interestingly, even though Jesus was physically present with these men, he still opened the word of God to them. So starting with Moses, he took them through the Old Testament and unfolded the truth of who he was. Friends, it's through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit that men and women come to him. And for you and I, that's got to be a great reminder to stay engaged in God's word daily. And bring him the puzzles and the conundrums of life. To him to find hope and to find help. So we've seen so far that Jesus comes to us in our own situation. Secondly, that he comes through revelation. And third and finally, Jesus comes to us, most importantly, by invitation. So Jesus was on his way down the road and about to go right past where these men lived. At least that was the impression he gave. Now notice though, Jesus waited until they said, why don't you come in? Here it is. It says, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is towards the evening and the day is now fast spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now clearly, Jesus waited until he was invited. He didn't push his way in. He came in to be part of their lives when he was invited. And Jesus won't push his way into our lives either. He's waiting for that invitation. So the invitation, now notice the result. The result of that invitation was that two discouraged and disappointed disciples met Jesus. And they were filled to overflowing with hope. And that's still true today. He will fill you with that hope where there is not hope. And he waits for that invitation from you. Friends, no one will be in heaven apart from the reason that they ask Jesus to forgive their sin and to be part of their life so that he can give them eternal hope. So today, Jesus Christ comes to us in exactly the same manner. He comes to give hope. But he waits for your invitation. So my question to you is this. Have you ever invited Jesus into your life? Why don't you just take the time to simply say, Lord Jesus, I've heard about you. I know a little bit about you. Maybe I've read a little bit about you. But I've never actually accepted you or invited you. So my question to you today is, will you? Will you invite Jesus into your life today? And say, I need you. Perhaps this crisis has caused you to realize how inadequate you are in your own life. To meet the challenges just of everyday life. Perhaps you need to say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior and my Lord. And if you will invite him into your life, just as he did with those two, when they invited him into their home, he will come and you'll make his home in your heart. So as we close this message today, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. I'd like to lead you in a prayer of invitation, just like we talked about. So why don't you do it now and pray simply something like this. Say, dear God, thank you for letting me hear 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. I realize that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus Christ in my life. So today, Father, I invite Jesus to come and to be my Savior and to forgive me, to take up residence in my life. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my heart. Please come live within me. And I promise that I'll follow you and I'll listen to you and I'll be your disciple. Now, if you prayed that prayer, would you do me a favor and drop me an email to info at newhope.net.nz and we'll send you some material that'll help jumpstart you in your Christian walk. Now, the most important thing that you can do in these days of disorientation and confusion is to make sure that the number one thing that's the most important thing in your life has been settled, and that is your relationship to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. And I want to ask you to make him Lord of your life today. Then you'll look back on Easter 2020 as the best Easter of your life.